0: I'm energized by the discovery of worlds within the world over and over again.
1: That's the novelist Jonathan Lethem, who's found worlds within the world over and over again in novels like Motherless Brooklyn and The Fortress of Solitude. Those books happen to dwell in the worlds within a world that he's known especially well, Brooklyn, where he grew up. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you back to the Writers' Institute from Lit Hub and the New York State Writers' Institute, based in Albany. William Kennedy, novelist and founder of the Writers' Institute, author of novels set in the city of Albany, described to me a similar experience of his own, of going home and finding worlds within the world. What was it like returning to the city?
2: Well, that was a revelation to me. Um... When I left town, I mean, I just was so bored with Albany, Uh, but I decided to come back. So I come back, and I got my job back, and the first assignment I get is to write a a history of the city (laughs) through neighborhoods. Let's do a a series of articles on how, how the neighborhoods have changed, and I got immersed in the history of the city in a new way. I wrote that series, and it was, I don't know, like a 26 articles, I think it was. and That exploded my, my knowledge of the city, and and I just realized that, that there's so much to write about here. that I mean, I just felt like I was given a, a great, great gift. I didn't know I was going to wind up as a, <laughs> at the university and, and be connected to a writer's institute. That was a gift of another kind, but I love it.
1: Jonathan Lethem found something like this too in his novel, The Fortress of Solitude. There, Lethem's back in his hometown of Brooklyn, where he gets to Worlds Within the World. It's another example of how writing can explore the world we already know as much as it can invent fictional worlds and communicate. Here's Jonathan Lethem in 2003 reading from his novel about a particular world within the world, the subworld of comic collectors. It takes shape between main character Dylan Ebdis, who has a comic book adaptation of the movie Logan's Run with him, and a kid he's met named Arthur Lahm. Together they forge, in this passage, a world of art, conflicted allegiances, and mixed feelings.
0: Dylan could only glare. His curiosity mingled with a certainty that he and Arthur Lahm were more objectionable, more unpardonable together than apart. Up close, Arthur Lahm had a blinky, agitated quality to his features, which made Dylan himself want to knock him down. His face seemed to reach for something, his features like a grasping hand. Dylan wondered if there might be a pair of glasses tucked in the background somewhere, perhaps in a side pocket of the monumental blue knapsack. Dylan hurried the comic book into his binder. He'd bought it on Court Street at lunchtime and debated allowing it to be seen inside the school a breach of general good sense. It was a lousy comic, though, stiff with fidelity to the movie, and Dylan had decided he wouldn't care any more than he'd be surprised if it were taken away. This, a conversation with his homely double, wasn't the price he'd expected to pay.
1: One of the weird things about a writer's institute, or possibly an institute of learning in general, is that it creates a world within the world by collecting people who often do their things in an isolated way. I talked to Jonathan Lethem over Zoom, and I asked him about the odd intersection of writerly work and the world of other people at readings, in literary conversation, in writer's public talks.
0: You know, it's funny to have you draw attention to something that is usually kind of invisible. Coming into this life, I was a reader and... I revered books and the idea of the author was really alive for me. And yet I'd probably read hundreds and hundreds of novels and short stories before it really occurred to me that the author could ever be treated as kind of a, like a public figure. The book was the whole thing. The author was 100% the implied author. I remember even the idea that the author was sitting there kind of quietly lurking behind the book was something i had to come to understand and then you know there's i don't know when it is but i mean i guess some i somehow associate it with the collections of the paris review interviews which used to be done in in penguins in the 70s or 80s when i was first looking in used bookstores because that was how i found books i didn't even go to new bookstores i certainly there was no internet obviously but i didn't have any other way of knowing that 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 someone could be interested in what an author would sound like or say, then I would come across these interviews in the Paris Review, each of which is configured to read almost like they went to some mountaintop and talked to this person for the first and only time, right? Without even thinking about it, I thought, well, right. They want to like, have an interview with a famous writer. Maybe Maybe every famous writer gets interviewed like four or five times in their lifetime. I mean, the idea that I would lose count before I had even barely begun. And, you know, this also goes together with the fact that I just never expected to be anything but a real dark horse. You know, I sort of wrote in the expectation that it would be a miracle to get published, that I would be neglected, since most of the writers I liked were described as neglected (laughs) and rediscovered, maybe, if I was lucky, because a lot of the writers I liked had, had had to be rediscovered the amount of space that I've taken up has never been something I'm really comfortable with because I don't identify with it. The word you didn't use is like the discourse. and, And that's not just personal. I mean, people are obsessed with getting authors to talk about everything and talk constantly and be socially media present and answer for themselves. And the books are not, you know, they're not enough at some level. My instincts are like, wait, what, what if the book was just the only thing that might be amazing? But I have also, I've noticed myself being a, not just an obliging person, but a very curious one. I like interaction and I like conversation with people who care about the things that I care about. And I'm gratified and flattered and also fascinated to think aloud about what I'm trying to do or what I've, what I've happened to do.
1: Do you ever, when you read a book or when, let's say you were a younger writer, did you start to think more about the process of the book's making when you're reading the book? Or is it always this
0: self-contained thing? Mm, My way of thinking about how books were made was to try to make them. I grew up with visual artists around me and, and my mother was a big reader and talker. There was no academic discourse. So trying to make them seemed like how you understood things and how you understood the world. I don't think I thought about like what is now called craft questions or, you know, there's some, come some point where you're curious. And those early Paris review interviews, they always, there always is a process question, like a kind of like a ha- or a, a, habit question, kind of do you write in the mornings? It's the beginning of that consuming interest. And there are only so many ways you can answer it. But I didn't think about that. I was aware that a lot of the writers I liked had started really young that seemed like a noticeable thing and that they wrote a lot so i just took those things as given like you're allowed to start trying and you should keep trying and you know the idea of the early middle and late you'll get better then you'll get worse but i just was like great i want to play too i want to be part of this it's funny because i'm i'm thinking there was one like ridiculous counter example which was the writer who turned himself into nothing but a public figure, and he was on TV, and he was running for mayor, and that was Norman Mailer. He was like, the entire idea of a writer being a public person had been swallowed into this one human being who lived, part of the time at least, he lived like a neighborhood over from me. He was very much a, a part of New York City and Brooklyn at that time. His controversies would be in the newspaper. But I didn't really think that anybody could want to be normal, let alone me. I thought I was going to be much more subterranean, like my genre heroes. I was going to be working in exile or from the margins or in disrepute in some way. That idea of this like big stage didn't make any sense at all.
1: One of the genre heroes is Samuel Delaney. Here he is at the Writers' Institute in 2000, I think it's 17, talking about being a writer out in the world giving readings and how it can go wrong this is a, another kind of public experience
3: and then you write and you hope you're doing something that makes the, uh, of interest and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't you know and sometimes people take offense some of you who were there uh, I don't know whether I, sh- I don't know whether it's fair to call it offense somebody started off the discussion who's, by saying that they were incredibly bored by my reading, and they wished I hadn't done it, or something like that. I wasn't, what, you know, um, uh, you know. So you, you say, okay, you know, what what do you say? That is what it, by be, being a writer means you have to risk that, you know. And being a writer who writes something that is not exactly what people are expecting, you have to risk that. And from time to time, I get it.
0: It's so sweet to hear Chip's voice. I really love it. Just I love his his directness about that you're fundamentally throwing yourself into unknown space in relation to other people by fooling around with words and making these public objects, which are, you know, part of you and they're expressive and they're, they're gnomic. You know, you're provoking yourself, first of all. So you can never blame anyone for any reaction they might have if it's more daring than see spot run. It's tangling with people's emotions and their concepts and their presuppositions. You probably got there because you were excavating your own confusion. I just think the risk is inbuilt and Chip puts it with such elegant clarity. And I love his undefensive tone. It's great to remember to feel that way. You have some of that, right? You you can, you have the ability. I have something that keeps me muddling forward and feeling incredibly grateful that people... Trouble to have any reactions at all. You know, it's really good to just constantly replenish this—the s- the simple premise that it's amazing that anyone wants to publish my crazy thoughts, let alone read them and or write a reaction or take them seriously enough to be uh, stirred or offended or or bored by them. On the one hand, you want to remember that along with that, consonant to that is that no one ever needs bother. And I always want to remind people if they're feeling the risk of being uncomfortable or or feeling turbulent or conflicted about something in one of my books, they can close it and the world will probably help them forget very quickly. I have no special power, except if you open the pages and you mingle your brain into mine, you know, and that's just a weird form of intersubjectivity, but it's super optional. I'm, and so I'm also just unbelievably grateful that anyone Takes the time.
1: Coming up, imagining new things by way of remembering old things. We're back in the Writers Institute with the novelist Jonathan Lethem, whose writing traverses realms of memory and speculation. We've already heard Latham reading from The Fortress of Solitude, his novel rich with scenes of a 1970s Brooklyn. Here's another brief passage. You can hear how a keen memory's details can help create an imagined realm, something different from memory.
0: Arthur Lahm and his mother lived on Pacific Street between Hoyt and Bond, far side of the hospital. Arthur's block was eerie, kidless, no bus, The hospital's laundry stack cascading silent white steam to the sky. The bodega on the corner, another sidewalk congregation of old men on milk crates, but graver, less amused, less musical than the Dean Street Bunch. Everything on Pacific, including a gray cat darting across the street, seemed further away and more pensive. The block might have been the Bermuda Triangle of Borum Hill. A space arranged the precise distance from the Guanas houses, from the Brooklyn House of Detention, and from Intermediate School 293 to fall under no domain whatsoever. Not a long-term solution to anything. Arthur Lom's stoop nevertheless formed a kind of oasis on certain October afternoons when he and Dylan would tiptoe there unharassed and set out a chessboard under the furling shadow of the hospital's steam.
1: Somebody asked Lethem about memory in 2003. Here's what he said.
0: I'm very lucky. I'm blessed with a very good memory, and I can recall the texture of those days that I've been writing about for the last couple of years very well. But memory is also a cultivated gift. It's one that grows if you attend to it. And of course, being a writer, one of the things you learn is that your job, in a sense, is to dwell on and cultivate the things that for other people are sometimes distractions or passing thoughts or just idle amusements, you know, your own fantasies, your own daydreams, your own passing memories, your associations, all of these things that everyone has, everyone has moments when they suddenly experience an intense memory or a memory has an unusual emotional charge to it, or two things that are obviously and and, and utterly unrelated somehow seem charged in relation to one another, they seem to have some connection, or something, a funny misunderstanding of words, a pun or play on words amuses you and seems ticklish or loaded. All of these things that everyone experiences in their mental life, um, but mostly dismiss or say, oh, that's funny or whatever, and just kind of move on. The writer has to turn towards them and take hold of them. With memory, and for me, with memories of Brooklyn in the 1970s, this has been my job for the past six years of my writing life. That said, I shore it up with all sorts of research and all sorts of conversation, too. I look up old friends and I pull things out of them. I make them remind me of stuff I've forgotten. I trigger memory and emotional association every way I can, and that sometimes does involve walking around Brooklyn and contemplating stuff and listening to the old songs, then digging out the pop charts you know, for 1976 and just seeing what was on the radio.
1: Back once more to hear Jonathan Leatham conjure that somehow both remembered and fictional place. This, again, is from the Fortress of Solitude.
0: Arthur Lahm's bedroom windows faced the rear entrances and neglected backyards of the stores on Atlantic Avenue. The rear windows of apartments above the stores, the Brooklyn house of detention above the rooftops, the municipal buildings and courts of downtown Brooklyn behind the jail, the trace of Manhattan's high teeth visible past downtown Brooklyn. Arthur Lahm gazed out of his bedroom with a pair of binoculars. Fading evenings, after their inevitable chess, Arthur and Dylan would gaze through the binoculars in turn, spying on nothing in particular, in silence for once, until Arthur snapped on his radio, which was tuned to an AM station permanently playing Dreamweaver or Fly Like an Eagle. Mostly, though, they sat on the stoop. On certain summer days, they might have made up the contents of a diorama in the Museum of Natural History, creatures shot by Theodore Roosevelt when stuffed and mounted in a case. Dylan Ebdus, Arthur Lom, Homo sapiens, Pacific Street, Brooklyn, 1976.
1: So there you have those historical fictional figures, two chess-playing comic collectors who occupy a social-cultural fringe in the 1970s. And yet comic book culture is now also Marvel culture. It's dominant in film and TV. Maybe it's just all-around dominant. I wanted to talk to Jonathan Lethem about how art, literature, creative work, or maybe I'll say writing in general, interacts with and changes a culture. I guess this might lead back to something you raised before, which is a word that I hadn't used, which is the discourse. Writers might contribute to or challenge or reroute the discourse. I think Samuel Delaney is, you know, moving the discourse, is doing things to it.
0: But also... We should probably, and I, I suspect he would chime in like this remember not to place it in the singular as if it's centralized and can be objectively confirmed in its parameters from all sides by anyone who comes up. It's not the discourse, it's discourses, because there are many of them. There are many resonating, interpenetrating, differently organized realms of value and interest. That we could call discourses in some of them chip isn't an outsider at all he's a titanic figure who's uh, you know had periods of overwhelming recognition and and you know winning all the awards and being central to the direction of an entire field of operations influential on hundreds and hundreds of writers that's one discourse there are others in which he kind of can't get arrested and is a outsider figure in some helplessly permanent way that I would love to challenge, but I don't have the power to do so by the nature of not just his, you know, multiple identities, but also the particular intricacies of his prose and choices of subject matter. There's discourses. We're creating one right now. We could maybe occupy a portion of a a recognizable continuum of writers talking tending to talk a certain way about certain things with certain unstated assumptions lying in the background. But it's all a construction, and there are many, many possible ways of constructing it. There are people who think that the center is really, really far away from the kinds of things you and I are talking about right now, and they're as right as we are.
1: You are a student of Samuel Delaney, among among many, many, many others, but I see you as somebody who also sits at... A kind of hinge point between multiple discourses. I think of your work as something as maybe just historically it it occupies this space, but also I think logically it occupies the space between imaginative, fantastical, mythic genre literature and something like the essay fictions that have begun to predominate in certain discourse circles. There's often an essay- lurking around the fiction that you write an essay of, of your own and this, this relates to that earlier point too about people want writers to say more than what's within the covers you clearly have kind of essayistic capacity in conversation and in your own essay writing how does that sort of thinking essay thinking relate to the making of fictional worlds
0: so the first thing to say is i never identified with the essay at the outset partly because of what i said before that i grew up in a world of visual artists and the idea of artifacts and expressivity was about making stuff making these tangible dreams or experiences for other people to participate in whether they were films or cartoons or paintings or or what i settled on eventually which was stories and novels not to be um full of opinions and weighing in on stuff and having um theoretical articulations or nonfiction commentary. I, that wasn't something I was drawn to or thought I was going to be good at or, or interested in trying to become good at. And I didn't write anything that you could call an essay until after I'd written many dozens of short stories and at least four full-length novels. I mean, I know what the first essay I ever wrote was, if you don't count like a book report in high school. And I didn't even write very many of those because I was a shirker. And that was the, the essay that became the first chapter of a book called The Disappointment Artist. It was about John Ford's movie, The Searchers. And I wrote it after I finished my fourth published novel, it was the fifth novel I'd written, called Girl in Landscape, which was a book that took some of its inspiration from my having become obsessed with John Ford films and John Wayne as a persona in those films. And a, a couple of them in particular, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and, and The Searchers, I wrote the novel, but I set it on kind of like on Mars, basically. I used a sort of a Ray Bradbury, dreamy, poetic version of science fiction as the setting. And it wasn't even overtly a Western. So it didn't refer directly to this thing that it was encrusted around. It concealed that thing. So then I found myself wanting to say more directly, not even to explain the book, but just to explain feelings I was having, I've been really obsessed with John Wayne and John Ford and The Searchers and it's, it's a conflictual feeling. So i started writing this essay that was a kind of afterbirth to that novel. It was a real puzzle to me and it took me forever. I, I've never rewritten a thing so many times as I rewrote that essay. And by the end of it, I had succeeded in declaring the things I wanted to declare and I was kind of proud of it. I got it published and then it was a conundrum. It was like, what was like, what did I just do there? What was that? Around that same time, I began to accept a few assignments. I, I reviewed a couple of people's books. And I actually was very briefly a film reviewer in that same period. And I liked trying that because I'd been reading film criticism. By that time, I had critics in in a few areas, you know, like Manny Farber in film and Grill Marcus and Robert Kriscow in pop music, who I was sort of taken with. I was obsessed with their prose styles. I still didn't think I wanted to do that. I wanted to write more novels. That was what I knew what I was for. And the fact that I've ended up writing so many essays and, and, you know, even writing them sometimes in a fairly intellectual framework, like, let me try to understand all of Stanislaw Lem's projects in one long essay, or let, let me tell you why reading Edward Snowden's memoir is culturally important. They're pretty thinky pieces, and it's not who I thought I was. I still think in some ways that I come at the idea of the essay from inside fiction. I think of them as secretly stories about a person thinking. They're like fictions about being a reader or going to a movie or, um, or fictions about being an author who people ask to say things. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I have to find that character, Jonathan Lethem, again, who uh, seems to be in this situation where people think he has something to say. And I have to write a short story about him having something to say. My partner, Anna, just read this essay I wrote on Medium about Charles Long's sculpture. And I wrote about living with his sculptures in my house. And she said, you know, there are no other people in that story. It's just you and the sculptures. Your kids disappeared and I disappeared. <laughs> it's sort of a fiction, isn't it? And I said, yeah, of course it's a fiction. It's just what would a, what would a guy sitting and living with Charles Long's sculptures have to say about them, and then I made something up. You suggested my fiction occupies a space in relation to both the fantastic and the essay. Well, yeah, almost all of my favorite writers when I was forming the ideal of what kind of writer I wanted to be were dreamlike and surreal, whether it was Lewis Carroll or Philip K. Dick or Le Guin or Delaney or Borges or Kobo Abe. And I also saw a lot of the things that were not overtly dreamlike or surreal or fantastical in terms of their grotesque or gothic or surreal component, like Nathaniel West or Raymond Chandler turning Los Angeles into a, a gothic nightmare. Or, you know, when I started reading someone like Iris Murdoch seeing the social novel as a kind of Shakespearean fairy dream, you know, where the characters were enacting a kind of a a mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E. I didn't really see realism as very real. I'm still that person, even though I read a lot more mimetic fiction now, and I've committed some. I mean, there are two or three novels that are could be argued free of fantastical or surreal devices. You know, like, but even those, if you look at them really closely, you know, uh, Dissident Gardens has a chapter where the the character steps into an episode of All in the Family and has a personal interpersonal relationship with Archie Bunker. And also the climax of that novel is a the assassination of a man wearing an Abraham Lincoln costume on the streets of Sunnyside, Queens by coin collectors. So the Unreal and its ways of interpenetrating reality seemed to me to be my center of operations and when i think about the essay i guess i'm thinking about the way that the dreaming or writing or speaking self the thinking self is a kind of implement of the surreal it's a surreal element or a fanta- it's a fantastic device we have tables and chairs and apples and cherries and shirts and pants and socks but everything else seems to me pretty much up for grabs you know like once you put subjectivity and Consciousness in the mix, it all gets pretty strange. I'm usually looking at that, even when I'm setting up the mimetic stuff, the tables and chairs and pants and socks and shoes.
1: Listen to what Lethem can do with all that stuff. Here's another place he's made. This is in his novel Dissident Gardens, from which he read at the Writers Institute in 2013. In this scene, a character named Cicero finds his way into the world of chess, accompanied by a cousin of a chess player named Lenny,
0: Chess was a secret garden of rational absolutes. On the squares, things swooped or swerved according to their hard and fast scripts. Bishops and rooks thus, pawns durably plodding, black and white unmistakable foes. Knights, like Cicero himself, had secrets. Knights played at brazen invisibility, at walking through walls. Apparently looking in one direction, knights killed you in a side glance from another. If you employed them just so, all other pieces seemed earth-mired, sluggish as pawns. Cicero believed in chess. And so, though Miriam interested him as a fellow endurer of Rose, one with an advantage of years, when Miriam escorted Cicero into the tiny chess store, he forgot about both women. The store, air mucked with pipe smoke, smeared glass cabinets exhibiting exotic sets and in the ice cold mezzanine, the gray, obsessive figures, barely human, their coats not even shed, hunched over gnarled end games. The pale, twitchy hands that darted forth from sleeves to clop the wooden pieces forcefully to new squares and flicked out to punch the dull brass button on the time clocks. Those hands might have had a life of their own, no relation to the rolling eyes and bunching brows and pursing lips above. You might have no idea, looking only at the faces, which of them was connected to the hands that had made the newest moves. This might be Cicero's first glimpse, really, of an authentically academic setting, the destination toward which his life was pitched, a miniaturized world craven with self-regard, unimpressive except to those who read the palace codes, and sublimely oblivious to the outside. And Cicero was here not only to meet at last, famous Cousin Lenny, who'd played Bobby Fisher once. Cicero was here to play him. Lennon Angrish bustled upstairs a moment after. Uh, cousin Lenny, is, his first name is Lennon, part of his family legacy. Lennon Angrish bustled upstairs a moment after. A glass of tea, he said, before greeting Miriam, slapping his palm in mock outrage on the small counter, where the proprietor only lifted his eyebrows slightly. Then the bearded fist of Cousin Lenny's face unclenched, his smile revealing a trace relation to Rose in the gap of his teeth. Behind them, his molars were a disaster area of black and gold. Bubula, he said. He clutched Miriam in her houndstooth coat, her purse trapped in his embrace, his limbs encasing her like a sausage, then released her to the vigilance of his gaze which mingled scorn, worship, and guilt. The black hair everywhere on his head was clipped to a weirdly identical length. His fuller brushes of eyebrows, his lip-smothering beard, the hairs on the top, on on top, the same as that as those shooting from around his ears, as though he'd been mowed. His spinal curvature t- tended toward the rabbinical; his eyes toward the heretic. That beneath his stinking black coat, Lenny wore some insignia of the hippie: a worn, thin, Woodstock T-shirt, bird perched on guitar's neck, a frayed, woven sash of rainbow wool for a belt. This did nothing to counter the impression of a figure heaved painfully and against steep odds into the present, out of the rank and degraded past.
1: Coming up, finding those worlds within the world. We're back in the Writers' Institute, and because this is the third segment of our fifth episode, I'm gonna do something weird. I was listening to the archives of writers' events, talks, readings from the Writers' Institute, and I heard a familiar voice. What does, especially with the of Jesus, and what did addiction mean to you, maybe aesthetically, or how did it inform you know, your, your form, your style? Yeah, yeah, that's me from 2012, 10 years ago. This was at a Writers' Institute event in Albany. I'm asking a question to the short story writer and novelist Dennis Johnson about addiction and literature. Dennis Johnson, who died in 2017, was the author of Jesus' Son, of Train Dreams, of Angels. I thought, and still think, and will always think, that he wrote some of the greatest fiction ever written. I still can't believe I talked to him. It was the honesty and immediacy of his answer that struck me. Well, oh, the question is how did addiction inform my style or affect me aesthetically Well, it just kept me from writing for a long time. I mean, I think it did really, really affect my style, and I'll tell you why I think
2: that. I wrote it in 1995 or six. I took mushrooms. I hadn't had any psychedelic drugs for decades, or any kind of drug at all.
1: And uh, then I tried to write about it, like
3: to write prose that would reflect that weird state, and. uh, it was exactly like everything else I wrote. <laughs> it was, I mean, exactly. Oh, that's, oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Back with Jonathan Lethem, now in 2022, I wanted to talk about authorial bluntness at events, that kind of honesty, and we did talk about it while we listened to Writers Institute archives together. This is a writer talking about writing in a, to me, shockingly blunt way. It doesn't seem like she's creating a, a fictional version of her work. So anyway, this is, this is Anne Beatty, talking about. (laughs) I guessed. I guessed it was Anne. And here she is, short story writer Anne Beattie at the Writers Institute in 1991. Probably the genesis of all the writing for me, whether or not it emerges that way, is that it's primarily visual. In other words, people may say,
0: you know, you write very convincing dialogue, and I say you write terrible dialogue, but whatever is said on that level, it's, it's almost interchangeable a lot of the time as filler. The way other people might use narrative, I might use dialogue. You know, it doesn't really ever carry the plot forward in any
1: way. But for me, at least, the visual elements do carry the plot forward. They, they may not necessarily be as dazzling as I hope or something for the reader. But for me, that is what propels the story, what makes it happen. Uh, so there's, I, there's at least a lot of that in there, whether it's successful or not is, you know, open for debate. I can't think of any writers normally who would call some of their writing filler
0: Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start just with the same human feeling that I got from the Delaney which is it's nice to hear Anne's voice and I love hearing her think aloud and I'm also thinking about her emphasis on the visual less I mean if the filler is an interesting word yeah she lives with a painter I mean she was also buddy was buddies with my dad for a while filler isn't such a negative word if you think of it in terms of painting, there are areas that need filling in to support the entire composition. It sounds a little bit less like someone trying to pad a college paper, right? If you think of what a painter does when they're left with an area of background or, or foreground that needs infilling, the thing about the strict, surfacey, depiction that Anne valorizes as her, you know, her method her way of going about things, is it has, I mean, there are definite results, and certainly there are no, like, talking kangaroos in in her fictions. On the one hand, it seems to be doing something that's quite locked onto the world of actuality of those tables and chairs and shirts and pants, by restricting itself to those names. But language is in the middle, screwing it up with its fantastical, distorting lens. And that is a place where the dream and the consciousness and the ideological and the surreal all flood in and mess around again. That happens to Anne Beattie's sentences just as much as it does to mine. We also have examples of how some of the strangest writing ever done is when, you know, like, rogue grie is where the desire to restrict oneself to surface visual descriptive exclusions is taken so far that it bends into absolute bizarre abstraction. Also, all kinds of, like, really nightmare (laughs) sexuality and, 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 and emotion flood in precisely when you try to exclude. I guess I think that any of us who are mucking around with language have the basic condition of opening up those taps and letting the crazy stuff flow puts us all in a situation that's more more in common than divergent
1: one of the striking things also just about the Jonathan Letham story is the way that you have thrived in Scenes, the, the legendary Bennington College. You're also, <laughs> if you
0: want to call that
1: thriving, well, in a in your way, in your in a way, um, and and you're like a bookstore person. You're from this kind of, I also see it as a sort of parallel with Tarantino in the video store, Jonathan Lethem in the bookstore. How important are are scenes to you? And I'm including being you know in in the company, of visual artists, growing up and beyond. What does that do for you? I
0: don't usually put the label scenes on my my instinct or my leaning f- into um, milieu or, you know, what you might call like a bohemian demimonde, countercultures. That's a word that attracts me more, even if it seems to be more fraught. But I didn't grow up thinking I was part of one big central thing. I didn't feel American. I felt like a, maybe a New Yorker probably only a Brooklynite, which was like at that time a sort of stigma version of being a New Yorker. And I was offered a lot of other kinds of complexly exiled or left-field identifications that I incorporated into myself. And I was, you know, sometimes embarrassed or confused by them, but I was also very often energized by the idea that there were these sort of worlds within the world, secret worlds. And so, you know, when I figured out that, you know, we talked about discourses earlier that like science fiction magazines had letters columns and that there was this intricate, gnomic, sulky, resentful, complex identity. I was like, that's cool. I want to go to I want to go in there and see what it feels like to go to those conventions and be part of that brand of exile, just like i had been sort of a secular Jew and i had been sort of a Quaker and I was sort of a hippie and I was sort of a Brooklynite and I was sort of a. You know, public school kid hanging out with mostly rich kids. and you know, it was sort of like what's what's next? And yeah, books booksellers. I mean, what a what a the antiquarian cast of mind that's a total bohemian demimond as well as a, you know <laughs> a very bad career. And I had it as both. you know, i it was the only work I ever did until I was an author, and then people started inviting me to teach because I was an author. I was a bookseller, and I, I was part of that guild, you know, and all this secret knowledge and all the secret resentments or eccentricities that, you know, signifying secret handshakes and stuff. I, I'm energized by the discovery of worlds within the world over and over again. Some are unsuitable. You know, I, I couldn't get right at Bennington, but even rejecting it became like a kind of form of identity for me and obviously i'm a very uncomfortable californian but i guess i am one after all this time being wrong in a in a space is also a a, a, could be you know maybe irritating but it can also be energizing because it's got definition and a problem to think about and uh get all strident about like yeah i'm here but i'm not here or you got me wrong if you think i'm this um you know um so you're on to something for sure we're now
1: pivoting into the last stretch of this which i'm calling uh on Lethem." and if it doesn't mortify you too much i'm going to play some clips of you at the writers institute this is going to be by the way this is you in 2003 i'm not going to do the thing where i'm like you say one thing i'm like let's go to the tape and you contradict yourself Uh, and i don't think you ever do contradict yourself there's
0: like this kind of amazing coherence in your thought. The last page is is a closing of a door for me in my understanding of the, the characters, and I don't really know what would happen if I tried to follow them past that moment. One of the reasons I, I don't repeat myself is that I'm not curious about my characters beyond the parameters of the book.
1: Just that idea that fiction is contained is uh, a provocative one to me, especially maybe in this era of auto-fiction in which we're questioning how fiction lives in the world beyond the page. Do you think of the book as like an enclosed laboratory?
0: It can sound really small unless you add the provision that it's kind of like a, a universe in a laboratory, like the image that I fooled around with in She climbed across the table. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. The key thing is that its terms generate one another reciprocally. You can't pull them out of that space and have them... And then examine them, you know, like walking around a sculpture, like, let's just take this piece of this novel and, you know, reduce it like a bone in in a soup stock and then free it of its context and, and and then we can get a good clear look at it. It won't be anything at all. But that corresponds to also something that I suspect about, you know, human beings that we're, you know, I mean, I like that you butter me up so much by telling me how consistent I am to myself, but it's still a, a intersubjective performance that we're summoning up for this moment. You and I are having this conversation to exist to each other. What are we if we take away our world? Maybe a lot less than we fancy. I believe in relationality and um, yeah, the novels, I mean, I, it was a fun quote to hear played back. I'm assuming that I was refusing the invitation to write a sequel. You know, when you leave them alive at the end, especially if they're detectives, it does happen that people will think, well, when do we get to have another, you know, Lionel S. Rog adventure? And, um, and I could never, I just, I really felt helpless when I was asked that question because I, I couldn't even glimpse him after the last paragraph of that book. He'd fold it up inside the manuscript.
1: Did you ever consider doing like a Cervantes and being like, oh, and by the way, he's dead?
0: It's <laughs> good. I should just write that sentence at the end of everything. book. <laughs> but um, the nearest I can come in a funny way is um, I'm finishing a book now that's a kind of really elaborate, aggressive non-sequel to The Fortress of Solitude. But it's one in which some of the characters appear to have read, this is a Cervantes kind of play, right? They appear to have read a book that, although it's not titled The Fortress of Solitude, might be understood to exist in their world somewhat like that book exists in our world, a book about a neighborhood that they grew up in that you know irritates the hell out of them. So I it isn't isn't that that I can't refer to the interior existences of the other of the books once I've finished them? They're not the um, monoliths in two thousand and one. I've teased at this, but only just to expose its hopelessness. I have a couple of characters who have quietly danced out of one novel and into another one. But they're not the same person once they move into another world. The world is the determinant. So, you know, there's a Lucinda Hoke, who's the main character in You Don't Love Me Yet, is seen in Fortress of Solitude. She's dating Dylan Abdus and is with him one day when he's mugged on a, a bus on public transportation, I think. But she's also completely not. She's carrying the name of the other character. But those worlds are much more determinant than she and her name are. This point about the consistency and the
1: fundamental fact of the world over, let's say, character, over other contingencies, brings me to the final clip I'm going to play. This is Jonathan Letham in 2013 talking about Distant Gardens. And it is, a, it is an answer about the consistency of, of a fictional reality versus the research into actuality
0: that you did to write Dissident Gardens. I'd set out thinking I was on fire because of some detail and then I'd realize the fiction won't, it can't be made a container for this detail. It would just push it back out, you know, like a bubble that would just exclude things that didn't weren't really integral to the attention, to the emotional tension of the book and of these characters. It
1: seems like it's an emotional reality, in, at least in that answer, that there's an emotional relationality, an emotional real defining the fictional universe. And if a fact doesn't sit with regard to those emotions, then it doesn't sit, the bubble pushes it out.
0: Is that is that right? Is it? Is it an emotion universe? Yeah, and aesthetic and a a mingling of emotions and aesthetics that are, you know, make make the two inextricable or make them part of each other. You know, and if I were feeling like uh, Tom Robbins right now, I'd say it's a vibe. Or if I was feeling like Henry James, I would say. It's a sensibility. The combinations, like some kind of matrix of language and the emotional urgencies of these invented humans that you've begun to believe in has sealed up and made a space where many things are possible, but only on their terms.
1: (laughs) When you're encountering this vibe or this sensibility, are there particular emotional experiences you're looking for when you're reading something?
0: I relate what I do, what I try to do every single day on the page to my baseline and imperishable appetites as a reader. I think about wanting to make an experience for someone else to undergo that is comprised of elements of recognition and surprise, frustration and satisfaction, velocity and abidingness, stillness plunging into a a moment and unpacking it with inexplicable sustain and then capriciously dancing through time at an ungodly speed to just find the next interesting thing and skip through days or weeks or years. All of these kinds of elasticity and possibility and conflation and juxtaposition that make me feel so wonderfully crazy when I read a book that I don't understand how they made it. I want to feel like Someone is reading me and having the the experience I have when I am completely bedazzled by uh, the freedom that Samuel Delaney or Christina Stead or Doris Lessing or any number of people, you know, Flann O'Brien, have allocated themselves. And I just think, oh, I recognize everything and I expected none of it. And that's when I'm feeling you know like i i'm i'm forever in love with my chosen form as a reader and i just hope that i can scatter some possibility of that experience through my work for the readers who are down for it it's totally voluntary as was like right where we started right it's like it's so collaborative with the reader's expectation and openness and it can be wrecked a thousand different ways and i don't hold it against anyone if it is wrecked by those thousands of ways it's just It's just great luck when it connects because then I'm with that person. You know, when I'm reading a novel that is the novel that I most want to be reading at that moment, that's surprising me and informing me the most, my brain is in a really strange transmigration into someone else's. And um, I'm inviting that hope that people might transmigrate for just a portion of their day into my brain. When I write the books, that's the only thing they're for is that possibility.
1: Jonathan Leatham, thank you so much for transmigrating through this Zoom meeting
0: right now. You bet. It was good talk.
1: Thank you for listening to The Writers Institute, the show from the New York State Writers Institute and LitHub. If you like what you heard in these five shows, let me suggest you first check out the New York State Writers Institute, go to some of their events in Albany. Also, Let me suggest another LitHub podcast, too. The Cosmic Library, produced and hosted by me. On The Cosmic Library, we talk about books of infinity, like Finnegan's Wake and A Thousand and One Nights. Guests include writers for The New Yorker and The New York Times. They include scientists, poets, novelists, and more. If infinity books sound interesting to you, and if you're listening to this, I think they might, check out The Cosmic Library wherever you find podcasts. Okay, now this is a moment of gratitude. For the people who have changed how I think and write and read, and I know they've changed how others do too. Thank you, William Kennedy, author of novels like Ironweed and Roscoe and founder of the New York State Writers Institute. And thank you, Jonathan Letham, author of Motherless Brooklyn, The Fortress of Solitude, and Gun with Occasional Music. I'm Adam Coleman. Thanks again.